Welcome to the Tibetan Blog of Living and Dying podcast, celebrating 20 years of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. In this second part of the three-part teaching on the art of happiness, Soga Rinpoche shows how it is through meditation that we discover what Milarepa called the deathless, unending nature of mind. And then now, how do we discover this deathless, unending nature of mind? In fact, that the, really the purpose of meditation is to waken that skalak nature mind and introduce us to that which we really are, our unchanging pure nature which underlines the whole of life and death. So here, I shall be presenting a little bit about meditation and going a little bit deeper into nature mind. Is that okay? Sava? Wait. Now the spirit of Buddhist meditation is captured so beautifully by my master, jumping by actually Nyojin Kanabasi. It's in, actually inspired by Longchenpa, Longchenpa-jam. Which His Holiness was talking so much about, inspired by his teaching. And that is, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace. In fact, you see, it was about 30 years ago. You see, um, I heard this very wonderful saying, which comes from both the Mahamudra and the Dzogchen teachings, which are considered to be the highest teaching in the Tibetan tradition. And it was Kalurumbache that actually I heard from him. And it was quite amazing because that these two lines had a quite an impact on me. Because these two lines showed what the nature of mind is and also how to abide by the recognition of that which is the meditation at the highest level. Now, some of you who have heard me teach before, read the book, Tibetan Bukuling, I think you know this already anyway. And you might say, why does he repeat again? You know why? Because we forget again and again. In fact, the main points, the most important things we need. In fact, it is actually said in the teachings. I remember Zaga Kontrumbach used to say that, that when you read like the Kunzana Mission, the word my perfect teacher, In, in like that, or many like the dual ornament of great liberation, or maybe some of the Lamrim text, or, or some like very important text, or like on the uh, some of the how do you say uh, some of these teachings. When you do that, it said that actually you should read at least seven times. I remember the English used to say, the more and more you listen 
the more and more you hear. The more and more you hear, deeper and deeper the understanding becomes. So, more you hear the teachings, the teaching itself kind of purifies, the understanding grows, so that even though it may be the same teaching, but you have a different understanding that understand more profoundly, so therefore it's always new, always fresh, clear. Now these two lines which I was going to share is very beautiful in Tibetan, so I'll say it in Tibetan. You, if you like it, you can repeat it if you like it, just for fun. Chu manyuk na tang sem machu na de. Now there we say chu manyuk. It's almost musical. Chu manyuk na tang sem machu na de. You can chu manyuk na tang sem machu na de. Chu manyuk na tang sem machu na de. Now that is because also some of our Tibetan friends are here. That some don't understand English, so I say a few things in Tibetan also. Chu manu. Chu is water in Tibetan. Chu manyuk is if you don't stir it. Now tongue means it'll be clear. So if you don't stir the water, it'll be clear. As his owners would say, it's a fact. You understand? Now, the next day, in the same manner, sem machuna de. In the same manner, sem is mind. Mind. Machu is if you don't alter it. Because trouble with, you see, we alter, we manipulate by too much thinking. In fact, many authorities on mental health have said that the root cause of all our mental problem is too much thinking. You understand? Sometimes it's like too much thinking, too much speaking, too much doing that takes us away from ourselves. So we do not know actually how to be. In fact, the French philosopher Pascal said, said, all of man's difficulties are caused by his inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. <laughs> so, Water, if you don't stir, it will become clear. In the same manner, mind, if you don't alter it. Without too much thinking, but leave it its own natural state. Then we'll find its peace. In fact, interesting, the word semmachuna de. De in Tibetan means peace also or rather well-being, or happiness, and could be even bliss. So therefore, mind, you see, left unaltered, will find its true nature. 
true peace. In fact, it was Long Chen Pao who said, uh, he said, do not stir, do not stir, do not stir this mind of ours. Do not grasp, do not grasp, do not grasp on this mind of ours. If you grasp, if you grasp, if you grasp, it will obscure our inherent nature. It's like, this, like the clouds that obscure the sky of our true nature. So, really, actually extraordinarily, very simply, if he can, just as water, if you don't stir, it will become clear. In the same manner, if we leave our mind unaltered in its true nature, it will find its bliss. It will find its... You understand? In fact, one great master put it, you see. He said, you see, samsara is mind and outwardly lost in its projection. Whereas nirvana is mind and inwardly recognizing to nature. In fact, trouble, trouble with us, we are scattered all over. Like we are all over. In fact, nobody's at home. So we miss ourselves. Monkey, you say monkey? In fact, in the teaching on the pardos, you see, on the, in the part of life, the main crucial instruction is really to how to work with the projection of mind. Trouble with us is that so much projection. You understand? So much there. So much so that really, uh, like we lost ourselves in the thinking, doing, and speaking. And we've lost our center, our ground. And we need to regain that. That's why we need to really bring our mind home. One great master. <clears throat> called Kembong Apchung. He used to call Nyujin Kembong Apchung. He used to say that meditation is bringing the mind home. So you see, so that in fact, uh, it is for this reason that we practice. And then, if you go more, you see, if you say then, what is then the essence of meditation? In fact, the essence or the whole foundation meditation is the state of non-distraction. The undistracted state of mind. This is the key. Sometimes known in Tibetan, Mayingpala Magompa. Mayingpa is undistracted, Magompa while not meditating on anything.
In like, for example, Mahamudra, many teachings, they speak of the essence of shamatha. Essence of meditation is the state of non-distraction. While not meditating on it. Of course, I mean, we cannot do that. That's the sh that we cannot start. Sometimes you see, if you can do that, that's really the essence. But because we cannot arrive at that, so then we need support. We need method to help us. But ultimately, the whole point of the practice is to arrive at the point, the state of non-destruction. Is that clear? In fact, there's another beautiful way of describing this. In Tibetan, it's very beautiful. It's called Yulme Ransarji Shepa. Yulme Ransarji Shepa. Yulme means without object. Rang means self is, uh, uh, rang is self, uh, sal is luminous, shepa is awareness, really. What is this? The self-cognizant state of awareness without an object. In fact, if you put it very simply, if, if you're a little bit confused this, at this point, yeah, is that very simply it is said that what is the quality of mind? The quality of mind is to know. But unfortunately, this knowing mind has been misused by the ego to grasp. So the whole point of meditation or the practice is to free the mind of its grasping to return to pure knowing. In the pure, what is called the the self-cognizant state of awareness. Is that clear? That is the really main point. But then, when we do, cannot achieve that straight away, because minds are all over, then we need, you know, we need, you see, since we are difficult for us to arrive at immediately for those of many of us, so, Therefore, and we're not able to remain simply in the state of undistracted into that, you know, you may run shape, then just there are different methods than we need. We need different methods of meditation to help us to arrive there. Because the minds are distracted, when we are distracted, the antidote is mindfulness. Or let me just make it very simple because of shortage of time. Is that, that, uh, <clears throat> that the real, how would you say, if you were saying, what is the, what is the kind of the overall picture? I finished with the vision of, I finished on reflection, impermanent death. And which really leads to, to, to discover what is deathless and ending right? Yeah. Which is discovered through meditation. And then from that comes also compassion, bodhicitta. And then comes also helping the dying and the moment of death. Okay, you got it. That is what we're going to cover tonight. Hopefully. So you see, when we begin with the Buddhist part of meditation, of course many of you know that anyway, that the first thing you see in the Buddhist part of meditation is called shamatha. 
in Sanskrit, Tibetan Shine, which when you translate into English is called calm abiding. It's like she is calm or peace or pacifying, ne is remaining abiding. It's calm abiding. You see, really. And the whole point of this shamatha or shine is to bring about the stability of the mind. There are many methods you can use, like in, you know, particularly in the Vajrayana. There's so rich in many methods. You can focus on the image of the Buddha, on the sound of a mantra, but one that is embraced by all the Buddhist traditions and many other spiritual disciplines is focusing lightly and mindfully on the breath. Now, it, it's very important in shamatha meditation, three things. Abiding, mindfulness, and awareness. In fact, it is said in the teachings is that you should not put 100% of your attention on the, how do you say, mindfulness or concentration. Use only 25% on mindfulness. And then you need also awareness. If there is no awareness, you may meditate for a few minutes, but you're everywhere on the, but on the breath. So you need another 25% that oversees, supervises, that you are being mindful of the breath. That's awareness. And then, the 25% mindfulness, 25% awareness, remaining 50% is left abiding spaciously. Remaining. Now sometimes there's a way it's taught, mindful awareness is taught separately, that's why I'm teaching here at the beginning. But then after a while when we develop, then the mindful awareness sometimes can become one. In fact, in terms of mindfulness, first it's like more deliberate mindfulness. Then it becomes effortless. Then becomes genuine mindfulness. Then becomes what is called the king-like mindfulness. Anyway, I won't go into so much details. But that through this mindfulness, you see, the key is this very simply, very simply, if you're using the breath as an object of your practice, is to keep your, your mind, keep bringing your mind just back to the breath. You see, if the mind goes to the east, bring it back to the east. If mind goes to the west. In fact, if you're distracted, then the moment, the instant you remember, you simply bring your mind back to the bed. Nothing else is necessary. Even to ask how on earth did I get distracted is a distraction. Now, in this, what's very important is earlier we said, remember, the quality of mind is to know. But then the ego has misused the, how do you say, misused the knowing mind and ego has misused and in, through grasping. 
And the whole point is to free the mind of his grasping, return to pure knowing. So the key thing is learning to how, learning to practice pure knowing. So in meditation, when you talk about mindfulness, it's actually pure knowing. When you breathe out, you know that you're breathing out. When you breathe in, know that you're breathing in. There's both mindfulness, there's awareness, there's abiding, remaining. These key three things are very important. But there's no concept. There's no even running comedy saying, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing in. If you bring concept in, then you bring in the conceptual mind. More and more, the whole point is to slowly free the conceptual mind. And in a subtle way, is to break down the ego. The thinking ego mind, really. Shamata, you know, really. Very much. And slowly you see sometimes through the simplicity of mindless. You see? Slowly through the simplicity of mindfulness of continuous bring your mind back to the breath. Gradually it comes down and mind will settle in the mind. Initially, of course, there is really, how do you say, the breather, breathing and breath, you see? The, but gradually as perfect the practice, breathing, breath and breather shade into one. You understand? And in fact, this is that, remember, um, His Holiness was also talking about today, about really the kind of, the, how do you say, of liberation. About liberation, about ego, about, you know. Remember when he was talking about when you really realize even the ultimate nature sometimes. Or, or a certain state that there is not so much, the mind is more, there's like, how do you say, you're more the thing, you know? Space, but that, but that, how do you say, it's kind of, uh, how do you put it? But then when strong emotions come, it can evoke, you know, that I back again. Remember? Remember? Rappel? He was saying it. In fact, what is really interesting about this practice is as you slowly practice this way, what happens is this slowly, the, it's like almost the thinking ego mind dies actually. Slowly all the fragmented aspect of ourselves come home, we become whole, negativity, pain, frustration, are diffused. And what's amazing, in fact, I remember Chukyam Trungbar which used to say, the one of the main problems in the West is speed and aggression. And really, what it helps us to overcome speed and to slow down. Because sometimes if you don't slow down, there's a Tibetan saying, 
Kale kale chena njoko njoko le njoko njoko chena kale kale. If you do fast, fast you reach slowly. If you reach slowly, you reach fast. In fact, Shakespeare called it the make haste slowly. In fact, through this practice, actually the speed and aggression are both actually. So then, what is also amazing, you see, that when you reach the that, that through this practice, when you arrive at the state of stillness, you see, if really perfect this practice well, then you will no longer be obstructing the movement. But while being aware of the movement, you see, while in the state of stillness, you are aware of the movement. But while the while movement is happening, you don't lose the ground of stillness. In Tibetan, it's called nanju riksum, ne stillness, nju movement, rik awareness. In fact, when the time comes, when when no longer in the stillness, you no longer obstruct movement. Are you aware of it? But in the movement, you do not lose the ground of stillness. When there's a less of a gap between the stillness and movement, then slowly you come to the state of one taste, a point what is called in the in the Mahamudra tradition, some particularly called one-pointedness. Some ways, the grosser self dissolves. Slowly, because you see, when you talk about samsara, it's always like you know, uh, it is that it's within it within the domain of subject, object, and activity. As long as there's subject, object, and activity, you're with the domain of samsara. So in the shamatha, even though it's a wonderful practice, way of transcendence, but the beginning there's subject that you, the meditator, the object, the breath, or whatever, and also the awareness of meditating. But, but gradually as you progress this, in the state of one-pointedness, it all dissolves. Subject, object, activity dissolves. Then you transcend, and then you reach the state of nowness. But in that, as if almost, that, that you actually you have gone beyond the self in some ways. But yet there's a really danger. This is not for those people who don't meditate, but masters always say people do a lot of meditation. A lot of meditation, accustomed to really a lot of sitting. It said that, that if you used to too much remaining, too much meditating, of course, which is good, of course, meditation. First you do that. But then, if you do too much, no, no, no I, I don't want to say too much, but you know, there's no. But then, the thing is, you see, if you do too much remaining in the breath, that there's a danger of a subtle grasping that enters. Like, even when you reach the nowness in the state of present moment, it's as if that nowness becomes a subtle object. And the mind that remains in the noun is subtle subject. And becomes subtle subject object duality, still the domain of samsara. That's why, really, when you progress well, you need to go beyond the nowness into the openness, into the state of clear seeing, into the state 
of what is called vipassana. What he's only talking about that wisdom that realizes egolessness. In fact, when you progress slowly, you see, when you be gone, become there, you see, when you let go of, after a while, even a subtle process of letting go of the grasping and the self and the duality dissolving, and then you see reach, reach a level where there is no grasping and into perception. And this is the state of transcendence. This is the state of beginning of the state of experience of Prajna Paramita and the state of Vipassana and experience. And then in that state, there is no fear of death, as Miller Ripa said. Do you understand? I'm doing it very quickly because of time. This is the problem in life. We don't have time. Pas de temps. Toujours pas de temps. So what happens is this, when through this process, remember we were talking about, if I go back a little bit, that through this kind of practice of calm abiding, you see that all the fragmented aspects selves come home. And also, sometimes you see we have war with ourselves. It, all these resolve, and we make friends with ourselves. And all the fragments have become we become whole. When we become whole, then there's the wholeness. The whole, these days they talk about holistic healing. That wholeness, that wholeness is so important. Sometimes we've lost that wholeness, that wholesomeness. Through this, we can regain that wholesomeness, which is the basis of all that is good. And so, very much, you see, the negativity, aggression, other some frustration, tensions, turbulent emotions are diffused. And also the unkindness in us. Sometimes, you see, there's little unkindness, isn't it? That's removed. And harm in us is removed. So that this is really a highest form of inner disarmament. Remember, he's always talking yesterday in the public talk. It's very, it's easy to control the body, but difficult the mind. Really, it is overcoming through the inner disarmament of the our mind and heart. Then we can find true peace. So that really, you can say this is the highest form of inner disarmament. And if you were to use in a Christian sense, it's really charity beginning at home. So then you see, as, as we're saying, that as we progress, you see, through the practice and through the state of downness, one-pointedness, remember we spoke about? Then their ego dwindles, confusion evaporates. The whole way we look at ourselves changes. And also, we give space, there's space there, you see? And emotion, at that moment, you see, because there is like, it's incredible about the, the ego. When it's not there, there's so much more space. And you're so much happier. Sometimes Western people worry about, when you Buddhism, when you talk about egolessness, when you talk about egolessness, people get really frightened. 
they get frightened by egolessness and, and emptiness. In actual fact, actually, when the ego is not there, you see, it's, uh, how do you say, when things that they, like, how do you say, if there's no egolessness, like, you lose yourself. In fact, the opposite. It's like, as I earlier said, losing the cloud but gaining the sky. In fact, when there's no ego, you're much happier. You're more fuller. You're more real. More whole. Is that clear? It is the ego that causes all us. Grasping at false self is the root cause of all problems. It's like the magnet that attracts all trouble. And it's that which really creates all the negative emotions. I mean, when somebody says something negative about you, why you get provoked? It's because of ego. If you really realize that, of course, it takes a while. But through really diligent practice and through realization, through investigation and through practice, when you go beyond your ordinary mind into the state of wisdom that realizes egolessness, when you reach that, then you begin to really realize that how everything is like illusory and dreamlike. That there, therefore, there is no really, in that, that there's a tremendous space in humor. And also what's incredible, there's a tremendous love, tremendous compassion, appreciation, faith, devotion, all comes from that. And what's wonderful, there's tremendous space, but there's no grasping and interception. And that, when we continue to be that way, and then you see, integrate that in your life. I remember in the Lojong teachings, in the seven points of mind training, it says in the, in the how to practice absolute bodhicitta, which is like this, he says, in the post-meditation, one should be a child of illusion. That you say, it's like almost, you see, you have what you call it. If you have that like light, you know, if you realize that light, light of your, this bodhicitta, what you should do is put on a torch and take it with you and then switch it on whenever darkness appears. That is to say, in every day, to remember this, remember that, that state of mind. In fact, I think the main thing is remembering, is that through investigation, when you come to realize with certainty, and then you really practice that remembering, and really then see everything from that perspective. You understand that? But there's no time, so therefore, I don't want to, you know. Is that clear? And that's really that practicing, really. When you do that, it is as if you've gone beyond the clouds. All the thought emotions which are like the clouds dissolve negative. As he's only said yesterday, emotion is not all negative, huh? There are some good aspects of it, but negative aspects, of course. And then what happens is that uh, it's like you see when you when you all the cloud like thoughts, emotions dissolve, you reach the sky-like nature of mind. When you reach the sky-like nature of mind, then 
from the skylark nature mind shines forth one's own Buddha nature or your true nature or bodhicitta like the sun. And sun has two wonderful qualities. Tremendous warmth and tremendous light. In fact, tremendous warmth is love and compassion. And tremendous light is wisdom. In fact, it has three qualities. It's the wisdom that knows, is the compassion that cares, and is the power to liberate beings. In fact, you see, when you reach this level, you have that wisdom, compassion, and the pure power to benefit beings. Begin to come out, because as you transcend, because if you would say, you see, uh, when we purify our ordinary mind, then what we derive at into the state of wisdom and compassion. If you were asked, what is the mind of the Buddha? Wisdom and compassion. And since actually we are Buddhas, inherently, we have the, we, he's always talked about we are Buddha materials. As I said in the, in the Yulama, it says sentient beings are Buddhas, but they're temporarily obscured. Once, once the obscurations have been removed, they are Buddha indeed. It's not a really direct, not an accurate quote I'm doing, but rough translation. Like, don't you notice sometimes, you see, when you look like, you know, we think, when it's clouded, we think that's the sky. trouble with us is we identify so much with clouds, with your negative aspect. And I think in the West there's like really, that's kind of really low self-esteem. It's almost like a kind of, you know, ice, I call it ice-sick look. And when you feel bad, you think that's you. When you feel good, it's you. But these are just thought emotions. They have some validity, but in fact, they're just merely thought emotions. I think people very much go for just identify the mind with thoughts. Thoughts and emotions are just simply like the radiance of the mind, not the mind itself. As Guru Mbuchi said, Padmasambhava, who brought the teaching Buddha to Tibet. He said, seek not to cut the root of phenomena, cut the root of mind. Because if you cut the root of mind, by accomplishing that, you accomplish all. Whereas, if the root of non mind is not severed, then you might know many things, but forever you'll be stuck. Shantideva used the example of, you see, if you try to cover the, your feet from thorns and trying to cover the whole area with leather, this thing, you might find one particular nail or something that you forgot to cover and, you know, it'll be a very big job. Simple solution is cover the sole of your feet. In the same manner, you see, trouble with us is we look for happiness outside of ourselves. 
And when you look for something of happiness for ourselves, out ourselves, of course you have no independence. You depend upon others. <laughs> you have no control. In fact, the great Master Patrambachi said, it's like keeping the elephant at home and looking for its footprint in the forest. In the teaching by this great master, his holiness was talking about He's a wonderful teaching on turning suffering happening into enlightenment. And he said that, you see, the wise realize, the foolish look for happiness ourselves and have then do not find. Whereas the wise realize all the happiness, cause of happiness are within ourselves. Seek happiness from within. Because as his only said, the granted external circumstances do contribute to a certain extent to one's happiness suffering, but fundamentally happiness suffering depends upon mind, how the mind perceives. So, so if you train your mind, in fact, in the entire teaching of the Buddha, is summed up in to tame this mind of ours, to transform. His holiness always speak about the most important thing is transforming the mind, transforming the mind and heart, transforming. That's teaching Buddha. Transforming our mind, transforming them. In fact, in this research also, they've realized they've on very experienced practitioners. One was Matula, Matthew, Matthew, and the other there are about four lamas. I know them. That in fact the results have been extraordinary. But one thing they realize when they practice compassion and transforming the mind. Uh, transforming the mind, the practice of compassion. That result is even more astounding. Like His Holiness often says, you think when you practice compassion, you think you benefit others. He said, maybe you benefit others. You do not know how much you benefit others. Maybe 50%. But he said, one that truly benefits, one that truly benefits, from practicing compassion is yourself. Because when you practice compassion, when you transform the mind, your mind is filled with happiness and with joy. In fact, the Bodhisattva talk about the blanket of happiness. Everything is happiness. You see, whole perception is happiness, like His Holiness is. The wheel of happiness. It is said, when you are, the saints of the past used to say, when you are not aware, unwell, then, then your inner air or the prana is, are not disturbed. When a prana or inner air is not disturbed, then all the other elements of the body are not disturbed. When all the elements in the body are not disturbed, this contributes to also an undisturbed state of mind. So the, and the undisturbed state of mind affects also the pranas. <laughs> you understand? So a wheel of constant happiness. Really transforming the mind. And compassion. And realizing the ultimate nature. These are the two things.
wisdom, compassion. So more and more, you see, we connect with uh, the purity of our inner nature. Then what is revealed is a fundamental goodness, good heart, kindness, compassion, love, simply exude. We began to understand others. We began to see them as equal to us in every way. And when someone is suffering, our heart will go out to them. As Buddha Maitre said, you see, what is bodhicitta? Rousing bodhicitta is for the sake of others, longing to attain complete enlightenment. In fact, this only says it is the highest form of altruism, highest form of courage, and source of spiritual qualities and essence of all the teaching of the Buddha. It is said that in order to accomplish Buddhahood, to have bodhicitta is all that is needed. He's only said that. But without it, enlightenment is impossible. So inspiringly, you see, for movingly, he taught, you see, in Larab Link, on Larab Gar. Remember? In year 2000, in September, Larab Link is our main retreat center. When his owners were there in Larab Gar, remember? The last visit. There he spoke so movingly. Uh, of course, it's near Montpellier. He said, very movingly, he said, while I live, I shall meditate on bodhicitta. This is what will give meaning to my life. At the moment of death, I will meditate on bodhicitta. It will help me to continue onwards on my way towards enlightenment. When I'm thriving and happy, I will meditate on bodhicitta. It will enable me to use my prosperity to serve others and avoid the pitfalls of pride and apathy. When I face failure and sadness, I will meditate on bodhicitta, for it will prevent me from losing heart and losing hope. So in all the time, in any situation, in life, when death is near, in success or failure, in joy or sorrow, bodhicitta is something he's only said, I cannot be without. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast of the Tibetan blog of Living and Dying. Part three of this teaching on Living and Dying Today can be found on our blog. For more teachings, articles and discussions about the Tibetan book of Living and Dying, visit the Tibetan blog of Living and Dying at www.living-and-dying.org.